Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Even though it might not seem like it, domestic terrorism, particularly built around white supremacy, is nothing new. Given that racism is our nation's original sin, it should not be surprising that in the post-Civil War period of Reconstruction, the nation had to deal with the Ku Klux Klan. How the Klan was dealt with at that time is both instructive in its own right, but at the same time foreshadows the through lines that lead us to where we are today. We're going to talk about this with my guest, Charles Lane. He's a Washington Post editorial board member and op-ed columnist. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in editorial writing and was the post-Supreme Court correspondent. He was previously editor of the New Republic and took action against the journalistic fraud of Stephen Glass, events that were recounted in the 2003 film Shattered Glass. He's also worked as a foreign correspondent in Europe and Latin America and is the author of the new book Freedom's Detective, The Secret Service, The Ku Klux Klan, and The Man Who Masterminded America's First War on Terror. Charles Lane, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. A delight to have you here. Talk a little bit about the backdrop during this period of time, particularly with respect to the Klan. How big were they? What did they represent at the time? Well, I'm fascinated with the Reconstruction period post-Civil War because it was a time when so many things in America were up for grabs, including political power in the defeated South. And the Ku Klux Klan, basic, which basically arose in the late 1860s, was a combination of sort of demobilized Confederate soldiers and Southern Democratic Party activists who were opposed to civil rights and especially voting rights for uh, the freedmen, African-Americans. And uh, the Klan spread extremely rapidly using that sort of old Confederate Army infrastructure, you know, that was still kind of latently there throughout the Southeast to the point where it probably had several hundred thousand members and more sympathizers among the white population of the South. And by the uh, early 1870s had grown into a sort of violent uh, campaign of with, with two goals, one to sort of decapitate the party of Lincoln, the Republican Party in the South to kill its leaders. And secondly, voter suppression to uh, keep African-Americans from the polls through intimidation. What was the attitude towards the Klan among Southerners? And what was the attitude in the North towards the Klan at this time? I would say that the attitude in the South among whites, of course, was overwhelming support. There was a significant minority of whites who opposed the Klan and probably a minority who were just kind of like wanted to stay out of the whole thing altogether. But the vast majority of whites in the South either supported the Klan specifically or supported its objectives, which, of course, was to maintain white supremacy. The North was slow to realize the threat of the Klan, and it wasn't until the uh, early events recounted in my book in early 1868, when the first Klan assassination took place, that a kind of alarm really went off in the North and people began to take it seriously. There was always a kind of off and on quality to that Northern alarm, though. As soon as the Klan sort of got, you know, sort of briefly repressed, Northerners turned their attention to other things and were always kind of looking for ways to kind of appease the Klan and see if we couldn't 
um, you know, defeat it short of launching another civil war. People were understandably very worried that turning to um, military measures against the Klan could turn into another war. And what was the attitude when Grant became president? What was the attitude of the Grant administration towards the Klan? Well, the Grant administration and Grant personally were uh, very strongly uh, opposed to the Klan for two reasons. One, they found it appropriately morally repugnant, but also it was a case of their political self-interest because if blacks could not vote in the South, there was no chance for Republican candidates to win any offices. So you put those two things together and they very much wanted to put it down. Their problem initially was that there was no federal authority under the law of the time to act at the federal level because law enforcement was always a state responsibility and the voting rights constitutional amendment, 15th amendment, didn't even come into effect until the middle of 1870. So at first it was really left up to the states to try to um, put this through down. And even though some of them were controlled by Republican governments at the time, they didn't really have the ability to do that. Talk about the assassination of George Ashburn and the events that that set in motion. George W. Ashburn was a leading white Republican, Southern-born politician in Georgia, who was that rare white Southerner who uh, fervently supported uh, the rights of African Americans and launched a political career after the Civil War to make all of that happen. And he was hated by the overwhelmingly uh, pro-rebel, as they were known, uh, citizens of Columbus, white citizens of Columbus, Georgia. And on March 31st, 1868, in the middle of the night, a group of masked men broke into the place he was living and shot him down in cold blood. And that was the and it was attributed to the Ku Klux Klan, and it was the first such attack, really, in, in the history of Reconstruction, and it really shocked the whole country. And that's sort of where the main character of my book comes in, Hiram C. Whitley, the government's detective, who was sent uh, by the U.S. Army at that time to Columbus, Georgia, to try to find out who had exactly had done the killing. And why Whitley? Why was he somebody that was chosen for this? Well, Hiram C. Whitley was a kind of uh, freelance spy and detective and uh, uh, jack of all trades in secret activity who had found his way during the Civil War into the Union Army's ranks in Louisiana and had proven himself a pretty effective uh, operative on behalf of the Union behind rebel lines, and it um, led to his later career in the federal service. He, he won some pretty important and prominent sponsors, uh, chief among them uh, General Benjamin Butler, and they recognized his abilities. And when this case came up, uh, they turned to him to see if he could uh, solve it. He had a questionable background. He had been very involved in enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act. He was just not a guy you would think would be brought in for this job. Yes. One of the um, themes of my book and one of the things I sort of had to wrestle with as an author is that here is this man who, after the Civil War, is instrumental in the federal government's crackdown against a truly evil white supremacist organization who himself, before the Civil War, 
had uh, kidnapped and a- ambushed and kidnapped slaves while they were escaping uh, in Kansas. And I tried to sort of narrate the um, strange arc of his career and to show that he's kind of a, a morally ambiguous uh, character. But there's two reasons to do that. One is that it reminds us that in the 19th century, detectives were not uh, necessarily the most respectable members of society in the eyes of many people. They were often drawn from the ranks of people who had been criminals in their past. And the reason for that was obvious is they knew how criminals worked. And the other reason uh, it's important, I thought, to, to tell this story is that it is actually the story of more people than we realize. There were many people in America in the 19th century who went from one side to the other in the Civil War and then back again. And we think of it as a conflict that uh, neatly divided the country along straight uh, north-south Union Confederate lines. And in fact, there were a number of people who sort of found their way opportunistically through the conflict, and Whitley was one of them. What's so interesting about Whitley is that if you look at what he did when he was working on the Fugitive Slave Act, going undercover, the kinds of clandestine operations that he engaged in, it's very similar to what he did later against the Klan. Exactly. And he used the same methods of deception and disguise and subterfuge, as I said, sort of for both causes, which shows you that in a way those methods are themselves not per se uh, good or bad. I mean, obviously, you and I in our ordinary lives don't lie, cheat and steal, but spies do. Uh, and the, what determines in their minds whether those methods are justified is the goals for which they're being used. After he became chief of the Secret Service, which was the government's detective agency after the Civil War, Whitley vigorously argued to the public that the ends he was pursuing in crime fighting justified using these methods. And that was a very new kind of claim to make. Uh, But eventually, I think he won a lot of people over. He was granted some pretty broad powers in order to do this. He really answered to no one once he was chief of the Secret Service. I mean, he was granted broad powers when he was cracking the Ashburn case. He uh, was allowed to take these uh, to take witnesses and suspects to an isolated military fort on an island and subject them to interrogation with pretty much no supervision. What does that uh, perhaps remind you of in contemporary history? And and, uh, secondly, after he became chief of the Secret Service, there were really no controls on his budget. There was oversight really from Congress, except very sporadically. And, um, you know, the, the, the country just really wasn't prepared to know how to handle a secret agency in the federal government because there'd never been one before. And so also the uh, eventual, you know, abuses that he engaged in um, led to some scandals and reminds us sort of the whole model we have today of, you know, congressional oversight of the intelligence community and everything is something that was invented really recently in our history, but did not exist back then. Why the Secret Service? Why did they become the organization that took this on? Well, to go back a step or two, probably many people listening think of the Secret Service as the people who protect the president, vice president, and other 
folks like that, and that's their role in modern times. But it was actually created in 1865 to fight counterfeiting because in the Civil War period, the U.S. developed its first national currency, and the federal government needed some people to go out and uh, first, uh, you know, detect counterfeiters and then bring them uh, into justice. And so this was the only detective agency, the only group of undercover operatives the feds had at their disposal when in 1870 and 71, people in Washington realized that the Klan was completely out of control and that it had to be met with a federal response and that part of that would be the army, but part of it would also have to be um, detectives, people who were capable of infiltrating it, finding out all the code words, finding out its membership, and eventually finding witnesses um, turning members, lower ranking members against higher ranking ones. And so they took this anti-counterfeiting team that Whitley had developed and under Whitley's leadership and tried to use it against the Klan. How effective were they? They were pretty effective. Uh, they were especially effective when you consider that it was never more than a, a limited number of men. They were all men who worked against the Klan in the South. They were especially effective just at getting inside the Klan. So they were sent to the South disguised as, with various kind of cover stories. Some were uh, supposedly looking for land to buy for immigrants. Some were sent disguised as um, tobacco peddlers. Some were sent disguised even as newspaper reporters. And a time and again, they won over, they sort of conned Klansmen into believing that they were sympathizers, and then they were accepted into these Klan units. In fact, there's a couple of cases I write about in the book where they were they were actually brought along on Klan attacks, so that Secret Servicemen were actually kind of in the uh, difficult position of having to participate in Klan attacks just to keep their cover. And eventually, um, this contributed to the breaking up of uh, Ku Klux Klan units in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Alabama. The one state that was really important where they were not effective uh, was Georgia. And Whitley, because he had started in Georgia, was very upset about that and felt that the government had not given him all the support they should in that state. What did he want that he didn't get? Well, he really felt that what Georgia needed was the same thing that had been done in South Carolina, which was the suspension of habeas corpus, you know, the provision that guarantees people can't be held uh, indefinitely without a charge. That, that lifting of habeas corpus was done in South Carolina, and it helped destroy the Klan there. He also felt that the Justice Department's uh, U.S. attorney in Georgia needed to be replaced. Uh, he wanted, uh, always wanted more money. Uh, budget uh, limitations were a constant problem. But um, in the end, it was felt, and I tell the story in the book, that, you know, the setbacks that had been dealt to the Klan and the Carolinas and Alabama were probably enough for the time being, and that it was kind of more prudent politically to back off a little bit. And, you know, I think that is probably one of the big unanswered questions of Reconstruction, which is, if the government had really followed through much harder against these groups, whether Reconstruction would have had a somewhat happier ending. 
Was there any political pushback to what Whitley was doing? Were some of the politicians of the time objecting because this was too expansive? There was a lot of unease right from the beginning, really, with the whole Klan crackdown because it was such a novel uh, exertion of federal authority. And And that was true even among people who generally supported it. And within that, one of the most controversial aspects of the uh, crackdown on the Klan was the use of secret agents, the Secret Service. And the reason for that was that even people who felt very strongly that the Klan had to be defeated were nervous that a, a republic like the United States should not have its own secret police. Um, you know, this was something that Americans associated with the monarchies of Europe and the French and Prussians, and they just considered this kind of domestic surveillance quite un-American. And certainly among the pro-Klan legislators, and I use that term advisedly, there were Democrats in Congress at the time from the South and border states who denied the Klan was even real and thought the whole crackdown was unconstitutional, bitterly denounced the Secret Service and the federal detectives in Congress. And so throughout the time this was going on, uh, it was politically controversial. How did this operation come to an end? How did it wind down? Well, by the middle, uh, by late 1871 and early 1872, Many Klansmen had been tried and convicted or essentially forced to run away in North and South Carolina and also Alabama. And the reports Whitley's detectives were sending back to Washington, along with other data, convinced that the Grant administration that essentially the Klan had been forced to retreat and therefore it was safe to kind of let up a little bit on the crackdown. And so by the mid-1872 period, basically the Secret Service was still in the field, but mostly in the mode of just uh, gathering intelligence and doing surveillance to make sure that this uh, uh, state of affairs continued. In fact, by late 1872, Grant was under a lot of pressure, including from within his own party, to pardon some of the convicted Klansmen because this would be seen as a conciliatory gesture and help uh, Grant politically. Whitley was against that. And ironically, they sent him to evaluate the Klan prisoners uh, to see which ones deserved a pardon or not. And he interrogated them all. It's quite a colorful episode. And in his own way, I think he prevented a lot of them from getting out. Um, But by once Grant won reelection in 1872, I think mistakenly a lot of Republicans believed that this threat of white terrorism in the South had been um, vanquished for good. To what extent had it been vanquished or was it just in remission? The Klan as an organization and a phenomenon, the people with the costumes and the masks and night riding, they were broken up by the end of 1872, perhaps 1873. But there was sort of a part two that was still to come after 1874 and again in the 1876 election, which was a much more open form of, like you could say, daylight terrorism by white supremacists. Again, with all the same objectives the Klan had had, but in in a new and different, somewhat more brazen uh, form. And um, 
one of the reasons that was possible is that in the 1874 election, Democrats came back into control of the House, including a lot of Southern uh, members who were former Confederates, and they would have blocked any uh, renewed federal crackdown. So um, unfortunately, politics in Washington uh, played a a negative uh, role in that phase. Is there a direct lineage between the effort that Whitley and the Secret Service were engaged in and ultimately what later became the FBI? It's, uh, I guess you could say the Secret Service was a proto-FBI and that its um, methods were fundamentally the same as those that any detective force would have had to use. Um, but because of Whitley, the scandals that Whitley eventually got uh, caught up in, the Secret Service was kind of cut back at the end of Reconstruction. Its budget was limited, and Congress restricted its activity just to counterfeiting. So whereas under Whitley, it was sort of increasing its jurisdiction. It was getting into the fight against the Klan. It was still in counterfeiting, and it was starting to get involved in other kinds of law enforcement Um, That sort of general FBI authority was denied to the Secret Service by, say, the early 1880s. And for a long time, until the FBI came into being in the early 20th century, there was no sort of general federal um, detective force. What were the scandals that Whitley got himself involved in? Well, he was, um, he had a dark side, as we've discussed, and he loved intrigue and he loved deception, sometimes a little too much. And certain Republican politicians, uh, understanding that, turned to Whitley to do little political dirty tricks on their behalf. And in one case, which I talk about in the book, it became, uh, it became public. This was a case in which Whitley and his Secret Service detectives tried to uh, stage a burglary and frame the Democrats for it. I don't know if that sounds like any <laughs> third-rate burglaries you've ever heard of, but when, it, when, the, when the plot went awry, they were all exposed, and uh, in the resulting scandal, he was forced, in 1874, he was forced to resign. It's a shame, I think, because it, in addition to just being the wrong thing to do, it aborted a p- very promising development in a sense that we were beginning to develop this national detective capability, which we did need. And Whitley himself, I think, was kind of um, a very talented figure who just had this tragic flaw. Just how violent was the Klan during this period? Very violent. Um, The murder of George W. Ashburn was only the beginning. And there were basically two types of Klan terrorism. One was the sort of, and this is classic, rural guerrilla tactics, of course. One was the selected assassination of local leaders of the government, in this case, the reconstruction governments in the South. So people like George Ashburn, um, various African-American sheriffs who got elected, African-American state legislators, people like that. And then the more general kind of intimidation that involves uh, picking people out who were just voters, you know, who were maybe the most prosperous black small businessman in a rural community, somebody who was trying to organize a school. Those people would be taken out and quite often not murdered, but actually just so badly beaten 
that there um, that that event would intimidate people more widely. There were times when it seemed like the Klan stopped short of murder simply because they wanted their victim to spread the tale of how awful and frightening the Klan was. And so it was just a classic campaign of rural terror in what was an overwhelmingly rural society. And um, there, there are various estimates of, you know, a body count and so on. But Whitley himself claimed that he had records of 23,000 uh, Klan attacks that were either fatal or involved uh, vicious whippings. I don't know if that's exactly true, but it wouldn't surprise me. What's the overwhelming takeaway that you came away with with respect to how all of this relates to some of the issues that we see today? As I think about Hiram C. Whitley, I think about somebody who had a lot of um, qualities we don't admire. Uh, He was a deceptive and dishonest uh, person in many ways. But when he was confronted with something unequivocally evil, he was capable of seeing it clearly and kind of putting aside the other business of his life and to some extent his past mistakes and focusing on that with clarity. And so I think that's in a way a challenge everybody faces when they're confronted with something that's, you know, the ultimate evil. Which side are you going to take? And notwithstanding all of his other mistakes in life, his crimes in life, frankly, when he was faced with ultimate evil, he picked he, he was against it, and he was on the right side. And I think that's, that's just an interesting statement about the kind of commitment, you know, it occasionally does, unfortunately, take from people uh, to resist these, these ultimate evils. Charles Lane, his latest book is Freedom's Detective, The Secret Service and the Ku Klux Klan, and The Man Who Masterminded America's First War on Terror. Charles, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed doing the interview. Thank you.